Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. As the president tries to swing attention to domestic affairs here with an event yesterday geared toward the the battle against inflation. This is interesting because Israel is not helping him in the polls. His foreign policy is not, certainly his economic policies are not. Here's the president yesterday at the White House. Well, this past week, as Americans gathered around their own kitchen tables for Thanksgiving dinner, that was our goal, to give them a little more breathing room. And together, we made progress. You know, uh, from Turkey to air travel to tank of gas, costs went down. They went down. Now, if people making a lot of money, that doesn't matter a whole lot because the costs are relatively small compared to wealthy incomes. In fact, as a share of earnings this Thanksgiving, dinner was the fourth cheapest ever on record. I want you all to know that. But of course, as we've told you here as well, it was still 25 percent more than it was in 2019. And that is why we find the headline here at Ipsos. Biden's problem is an inflation problem. It's just out today. And Cliff Young, the president of public affairs at Ipsos, joins us uh, to talk about it. Cliff, it's great to have you. Uh, Thanks for joining. This is obviously not a new problem for Joe Biden, but you're looking at an approval number in this poll south of 40 percent, which is pretty close to the the lowest that we have seen for him. How does this keep getting worse? It's uh, it's inflation and it's sort of the drag on of inflation. It affects people. Um, uh, Americans in general are thoroughly at this point especially the younger, the less educated uh, Blacks and Hispanic Americans. Um, And uh, they cite the economy and inflation as the number one issue. You would think at some point, though, if inflation is easing, following an historic series of interest rate hikes that have created, of course, a whole different problem for consumers. If you look at mortgage rates, if you look at credit cards right now, we've seen an easing in inflation, but his numbers don't seem to be responding to that. Is there a lag effect with this economic condition? Yeah, first and foremost, there is a lag effect. Um, And when it comes to economics, public opinion typically is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. But the other issue um, is that it's not about rates. Joe, it's about uh, the level of prices, you know, and and as you were saying before, things are still more expensive than a few years ago, and Americans feel the pinch. They can't make ends meet. Uh, when you look at specific demographics, like younger Americans, they, they feel that especially so. So yes, there's a lag effect on the one hand, and it's about price levels on the other. President talking about supply chain yesterday at this event. And they had, of all people, the Secretary of Homeland Security making media rounds to try to make the point. I know they had Pete Buttigieg, the Transportation Secretary, around the Thanksgiving holiday, and everybody gets their turn. Um, But supply chain, Cliff, and maybe you've pulled this, is not exactly a household conversation, a kitchen table conversation. Things are either more expensive or they're not. Is the White House just reaching for the wrong narrative? Yeah, they're trying to connect with Americans. They're trying to explain things. 
But in a context of uh, that, that is difficult at this point, uh, Americans are not ready to listen. Right. Obviously, supply chain and talking about the supply chain is super abstract. And the average American is not going to understand what it is specifically. But more importantly, people are not willing to listen right now um, because they're not feeling it. You write in your piece, what can be done? Need to be patient. The president, I guess, has time on his side here. There's another year for these numbers to improve before people vote. Defend the policy agenda, though, jumps off the page here. If he's going to get above 40 percent before the election, how does he do that? If it's not supply chain, is it I feel your pain? What's the approach from the commander? No, I think he needs to be patient. Uh, He's going to have to wait. This inflationary inertia is going to have to work itself out um, in public opinion. And it will. It typically does. Um, And he has to double down on his message, a message of economic growth, a message of uh, uh, economic vitality. Um, talk about those programs that he's like in, initiated over the last few years. Maybe today people are not willing to listen, but that doesn't mean uh, a half a year, a year from now, they won't be. Is it time to drop the Bidenomics thing, get rid of this uh, this brand? If we yeah, their branding that. has been uh, suboptimal at best. Uh, they need to go and talk about the benefits and the specific, you know, reality that people are, are living in. That's the best way to connect with, with, with anyone, um, including the American populace. We're spending time with Cliff Young from Ipsos. Cliff, I know you had run numbers uh, on the president's foreign policy as well, and we're seeing a lot of pushback really from progressives. And in some cases, the same people who are uh, being singled out in your new poll on inflation here. It's in many cases people uh, with lower incomes. It's in many cases people of color who this president needs to get reelected. How much of a problem is that when you add the layer of foreign policy here with what's happening specifically between Israel and Hamas? Yeah, foreign policy is an important issue. Um, it's not a determinant issue when it comes to the election. Uh, really, once again, if you put inflation versus foreign policy, inflation wins out, and that's, you know, that's tinged in a more negative way. Um, if we look at Ukraine as well, there are weak numbers there. The American populace in general, when it comes to foreign policy, um, is more uh, uh, is more isolationist, more inward looking than, let's say, a generation or two ago. Again, the real problem with the numbers is an economic problem or more specifically an inflation problem. Sure. When you add, you know, what some people see as funding violent wars or endless wars, I guess that can have a corrosive effect. Uh, Cliff, but I, you know, there's no doubt about this being an economic issue and something that voters are going to be weighing their decisions on here. I just, I wonder if there's anything more than be patient. If you're essentially saying the president needs to wait for things to get better, yeah, it's the economic context. It's it's difficult. Obviously, they need to double down on their message. They need to be, need to be on message. What are those things that are they are doing to improve people's lives? Um, whether that be on the economic front or the. Uh, uh, on the healthcare front or transportation or whatever it might be, infrastructure, as an example, uh, they need to, but they need to be patient because the context is more negative at this point. Um, what we know ultimately is that as inflation resides, uh, the numbers probably will tick back up, not to the levels that they were before. It never improves as much as it, as it declines. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a moment to be patient. And one of the points that I was making when it comes to, to, to patients is that the mm-hmm. Democrats shouldn't overreact. Indeed, um, a sitting president like Biden, even with the numbers he has, has better than a 50-50 chance of winning the next election. Maybe it's not 80 percent, but it's at least 50, 
percent, uh, 50-50, let's say, um, a successor, and a successor could be Newsom as an example or Harris as another, another one only has about a 6 to 10% chance at the present approval ratings. So hmm. once again, be patient, Democrats be patient. Um, this too will pass economic context, the negative economic context. Hmm. And ultimately, um, this is you know the explanation as to uh, Biden's numbers today. That's great. Cliff Young's message to the Biden re-election team, have patience. This, too, shall pass. How about in the Republican primary fields, uh, Cliff? I know that's not what you're looking at in these data, but uh, Nikki Haley is sure getting a lot of talk. Uh, larger crowds, uh, certainly an uptick in polling in New Hampshire, if not Iowa. And I wonder your feel here is we're starting to get close enough that the, the whole it's too early narrative doesn't really uh, seem to be working any longer. Is Donald Trump going to run the board in these early states or not? Uh, it Maybe not in the first couple states uh, because they're very controlled elections, Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, but definitely public opinion, more specifically, the Republican base um, is a Trump base. Uh, really, Nikki Haley is feeling a vacuum left by DeSantis and others. Um, there's no real change. He's changing the names. You're, you're not changing the levels. Ultimately, but what we know is that the indictments really didn't have uh, uh, an electoral effect. If anything, they strengthened Trump and they're really baked into the numbers uh, right now. Obviously, um, if if there's a conviction at one point, uh, could that sway things uh, perhaps in the general election? But I really think that, uh, you know, the favorite, if, if not the absolute favorite, is Trump at this point and everything else is kind of rearranging uh, chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Oh, man, that's just depressing if you're in the race for a second. Cliff, it's good to see you. I appreciate the time today. Come back and talk to us again on Bloomberg. Cliff Young, President, Public Affairs at Ipsos, constantly running numbers as we are uh, here at Bloomberg. We'll be talking in another week or two about uh, our next dive on polling from the campaign trail. But I do want to stick with this bead on inflation and the findings from Ipsos as we layer that on top of a very complicated time. Uh, for this president canceling his trip this week to COP28 to try to deal with what's happening in the war between uh, Israel and Hamas. And to that end, we assemble our panel. With us today, Jeannie Shanzano, of course, Democratic analyst, Bloomberg politics contributor, joined by Republican strategist Lisa Camuso-Miller, former RNC communications director and host of the Friday Reporter podcast. It's great to see both of you here. Jeannie, your thoughts on what Ipsos is telling us, because it's not the first time. In fact, it's getting to be a little bit of a broken record. Uh, inflation is Joe Biden's problem, and he's out beating the drum on supply chain. If you're trying to get Joe Biden reelected here, do you take Cliff Young's advice and just wait it out? You know, they have no choice but to wait it out. But in the meantime, I think there needs to be recognition on the they and the part of the administration as to why Americans are in such a sour mood. And they truly are to Cliff's point and to Ipsos's data and all the data we've talked about. And you look at these 18 to 34 year olds, this inflation is devastating to their lives. Just look at the issue of anybody who wants a mortgage or wants to rent. 
This disproportionately impacts young people who didn't have the benefit of getting into the system and buying or renting years ago when they may have got for buyers a lower interest rate. So now they're stuck with this seven, eight percent. It's devastating to them. So then you flip that over and people say, do you think your children will be better off than you? You're getting numbers like two out of 10 Americans only say their children will be better. Seventy three percent say we're in a, the bad direction, misdirection and part of the American public. And so you look at those numbers and what the administration has to do forcefully is to show this. It needs to be countered versus what the Republicans are proposing. Things like cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, cutting Medicaid, giving tax breaks to the wealthy. Yes, we are not perfect, but juxtapose that to the alternative. That alternative is going to be the story for them. They haven't been able to make it yet. And if they don't make it, it's all going to be about them. And those numbers are never going to be as good as they need them to be for Joe Biden. it, it certainly reminds us of how important timing is here. You can be the smartest campaign in the world, but his fortunes are going to lie in the trajectory of the economy, whether or not he can affect it, whatever the lag effect is of Fed interest rate hikes, whether we're in a recession or not. Uh, the second half of next year, whether he'll be able to take credit for beating inflation. It's pretty tough to plan around that, isn't it? It absolutely is, Joe. And the thing that I like what Jeannie said about um offering them some alternative, but also too, I think the electorate and what we're hearing in the Ipsos poll and a lot of other places that we're seeing sentiment is is that people feel unstable. And that's sort of, that goes back to your question about whether or not foreign, par- po- excuse me, foreign policy plays a role in the election. I don't necessarily think that people go to the polls based on what's happening um, overseas, but I do think that that the unrest overseas, the unrest in the economy and the unrest in the government is making people feel really uh concerned about who their leaders are and wanting perhaps a better change in something that's going to give them more stability. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Then brings, of course, the matter of funding for Israel, which has Congress in uh A bit of a standoff here between the House, the Senate, between even Republicans and other Republicans in the House. The new speaker, though, Mike Johnson, says he has spoken with Chuck Schumer, remembering that they wanted to do Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, the border. And at this point, getting that done by the end of the year seems incredibly unlikely. But here's uh, new speaker, Mike Johnson. Israel is a top priority for the United States, and supporting our ally there is critical. It's one of the first things we did. In fact, we passed the bipartisan Israel support package out of the House a while ago, right? Not, not long after I took the gavel, about a month ago. Uh, it's been sitting on this, in the Senate uh, and on Chuck Schumer's desk. And so we are encouraging him to get that done. We are encouraging him to get that done, knowing that that House bill can't pass the Senate. And knowing that this really apparently is going to come down to a a conversation 
about border security. Certainly the Ukraine portion will. And if it's all going to move together, there's going to have to be a deal on the border. Spent some time on this yesterday. It's very unclear how that would actually happen. And so we reassemble our panel. Jeannie Shanzano is with us, along with Lisa Camuso-Miller. An important event last evening, Lisa. Senator Tammy Duckworth pulled together a meeting. You probably saw this. Uh, to bring in officials from the IDF, including an Israeli major general. Sat them down with Democratic senators who have been very critical of Israel's handling of the war here and the civilian deaths in Gaza. Uh, it took place in a room just off the Senate floor, and apparently it was a very frank conversation, according to Brian Schatz. Is that the kind of activity that will accelerate potentially funding for Israel? Or is this all going to lead to a deal, potentially or not, on the border? And that's what this is, in fact, riding on. Well, I think we have to do everything we can to get this done, Joe. I think, I mean, your point is so right. The end of the year is upon us. It's happening. And they have got to get this done. There is no time to wait. I'm old enough to remember that Congress used to do things, Congress and the Senate, when they worked together, they used to do comprehensive, but comprehensive doesn't seem to work anymore. So I think we need to learn how to walk and chew gum. We need to make sure that we're supporting Israel. We need to make sure that we're introducing uh, people that maybe aren't in favor of uh, giving them more funding to understand that's smart on the senator's part to bring them in and to have a conversation about what's happening on the ground. There's a lot There's a lot of people that have forgotten uh, that long relationship that we have with Israel and how we have to be supportive of them over and over again, regardless of what they need. They're our biggest ally in the Middle East. We need to continue to do everything we can to support them. But we also need to move quickly in Congress and we need to stop waiting around and fighting over the airwaves and over the social media platforms. We need to get back to work. And that's something that I think everyone would like to see happen as quickly as possible. Jeannie, uh, we talked about this idea of tying Israel funding to humanitarian, international humanitarian law. Uh, Bernie Sanders out with an op-ed in the New York Times underscoring that. He writes, I do not support simply giving $14 billion to Israel without any conditions at all. And he's at odds with the Foreign Relations Committee chair, uh, Ben Cardin, on this. Not a surprise, I guess, to see IDF officials sitting down with senators last evening. Can they change minds like Bernie Sanders? Yeah, not a surprise. But, you know, really think about the idea that you send over high level officials at a time when Israel probably in its history is in the midst of a crisis and they take the time to come over and to speak to Democratic senators about funding. I think that shows us how important the debate going on in Congress is, not just in the U.S., but in Israel. I think Duckworth, I agree with Lisa, it was the right move. They do need to reassure not just Democratic progressives, but the American public overall. Because, you know, I'm sitting here in New York. The Manhattan Bridge was closed over the holidays due to pro-Palestinian protesters. We had a school in New York where there was a violent riot because a teacher went to a pro-Israeli uh, demonstration. Um, this is the kind of outpouring on the ground we are seeing. This is what progressive Democrats and many others are responding to. And so I think even beyond these Democrats in the Senate and, and Congress people overall, I think we have an obligation to let the American public know and be reassured that these billions of dollars in aid are not going to go to a use in any country, let alone Israel, that's in violation of law. Now, that said, 
isn't that the reality of all the aid we give? And it is, yes, if it's not, right. because, you know, a lot of people scratch their head and say, are you telling me we're giving money in violation of international law? No, we are not. So that's another part of this story. So, yes, mm -hmm. this is critically important, but a lot of this needs to reach beyond Congress and to the ground in the U.S. where we're seeing this demonstration, because it is public money we're talking about. Well, I do find it incredible, uh, the criticism from both sides of the aisle, actually, that the president is hearing Lisa. And I wonder your thoughts. I just read the line from Bernie Sanders and others uh, on the progressive left are very upset uh, with Joe Biden's support of a war that they think has not been uh, careful enough, a, a strategy on behalf of the Israelis that has not been careful enough to protect civilian lives. We've seen letters written from lawmakers. We've even seen one lawmaker censured on the House floor for what she said uh, about it. Then uh, there's Senator Ted Cruz, for instance, and other Republicans who are bashing Joe Biden for what they say is uh, coddling, uh, for lack of a better term, Iran and not being strong enough on Israel. Here's Ted Cruz last evening on Fox News. Listen to this. Joe Biden has been the most anti-Israel president the United States has ever had. There you go. From the very beginning of the Biden administration, this administration has undermined the government of Israel at every step. They've done so systematically. They've done so at a granular level. How do you rationalize the criticism from both sides, Lisa? And does it suggest the president might be doing something right? You know, I, I'm reflecting on that, but also on something that Jeannie said. And I think it just keeps coming back to the fact that we're so divided in this country that that we find ourselves, yes, in a place where if both sides are unhappy, then something good is probably happening here. <laughs> um, and that's the difficulty, right, is that when, when we're communicating out to our various groups of people that are listening to us, we're communicating to uh, a Republican audience on Fox News, and we're contributing to a Democratic office uh, audience if we're listening to, to Bernie Sanders, and both sides of the aisle are really unhappy about what's happening over there. But the truth is that the U.S. has to follow policy and follow history and follow the experts and do what's right. So to me, if that's the case, if the R's are mad and the D's are mad, then the president's probably somewhere in the right spot. But, you know, look, I'm not a foreign policy expert. What I do know mm -hmm. is that unrest in the Middle East makes everyone in the U.S. feel uncomfortable. And that's where we come back to the fact that the White House and the administration has a responsibility to communicate out as much as possible through the voice of the president, more than from the voices of other people that maybe audiences aren't listening to. And that's yeah. where I think the White House is really made a misstep here and not letting the president talk a little bit more freely and more openly in front of an audience about what it is the White House and the administration has chosen to do so far in this case. Just a minute to the news here, Jeannie. If the president has Bernie Sanders on one shoulder and Ted Cruz on the other, what does he do in the middle? Oh, I think he runs away at that point, Joe. That's hardly who you want on either shoulder. But the, the reality is, is that the, the White House feels very good about where they are vis-a-vis -vis this issue. We've got the Secretary of State visiting Israel for the third time. The president has been in close touch with all Israeli officials. And he, as he always says, watch me. We've gotten hostages home, including at least three Americans, but, but many more in this pause. He did get a pause more humanitarian aid going in, a lot more to do, arguably. But they really do feel that he has had more success in the last 50 days than anybody could have predicted in a very, very difficult situation. And so, you know, let Ted Cruz go on Fox and say whatever he wants. The reality is, watch what has happened on the ground. And it is 
you know, the Biden administration that has made this happen. They've been able to work with Qatar and others in making this happen. And they do need to be tough on Iran, no question. But they have seen results in the last several weeks, and they're happy about that with a lot more to do. Certainly not a success story at this point, but a good start to where we need to be. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The truce is intact, and the Secretary of State is on his way. Another important Mm -hmm. development, Anthony Blinken making, I believe, the third trip since October 7th. And it follows this meeting last night in the Senate. I'm fascinated by this, and I want to ask the ambassador about it. Tammy Duckworth put this together with senior officials from the IDF in a room with Democratic senators who've been critical of the way Israel has been conducting the war. They, they crossed the ocean in the middle of a war to talk to senators here in Washington about this funding battle. And that's where we start our conversation uh, with the ambassador. Uh, former U.S. ambassador to Morocco, and you've heard him with us here uh, on Sound On. Mark Ginsburg, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Is that the right way to do this, to have military officials in a room with politicians here in Washington? Does that make you feel comfortable? And might it unlock a funding deal? Uh, Indeed, that's the expectation that it will. But the issue here is that there's been increasing calls by uh, more progressive members of the Senate, as well as in the Mm -hmm. House, to condition aid, uh, Israel aid, on extending a ceasefire into a more durable ceasefire. So obviously, Israel, Israel's government is deeply concerned about the fact because all of these calls for a ceasefire, uh, which would in, a de- in, a, in addition condition additional assistance to Israel, is going to put a damper on Israel's ability to have the support it needs from the Biden administration uh, to continue to eradicate Hamas's leadership. And how you thread that needle between yeah. extending a ceasefire and having Hamas decimated is really one of the unanswered questions. Well, Ambassador, to that exact point, if you're the Israeli military right now, how long strategically can you allow this truth to extend before it really works against the objective you are trying to achieve? Well, that's, of course, the greatest question that anyone can ask right now. And I mean that without patronizing you, Kaylee. But Mm. how does Israel eradicate 45,000 hardcore Hamas fighters that are now either uh, sheltered in their tunnels in the northern part of the Strip or have taken refuge behind the human shields of Gazans who have fled to the south. And how do you do that in a way that doesn't cause uh, what we would call in the military collateral damage to civilians? I mean, that's a question that the Israeli military, I don't think, has a good answer to. Well, so what's it going to look like then, assuming this truce comes to an end tomorrow, days or even weeks from now? What's it going to look like when that first salvo is fired into Gaza, when the first tanks roll in, the first explosions? 
the PR uh, battle is going to start getting a lot more difficult for Benjamin Netanyahu, will it not? It'll not only be difficult for Netanyahu, but it'll be far more difficult for the Biden administration to continue to provide unbridled support for Israel, even though uh, its spokesman, including the uh, uh, National Security Advisor, just said this Sunday that Israel has every right to do what is necessary to decimate Hamas as a threat to Israel. But let's try to put this a bit more in some perspective. Uh, Bill Burns, the CIA director, is in Qatar right Mm -hmm. now to try to negotiate an extension of the ceasefire with Israeli counterpart, as well as with the Egyptians. Why? In order to facilitate more aid. Why? Because the Israelis uh, don't have a, a good end game that they can share with the United States. And number three, uh, Hamas, to all uh, what we've been able to see so far, has only lost several thousand out of the 45,000 hardcore terrorists that are a part of the organization and its collateral uh, terrorist organizations in Gaza. Well, to your point on the conversations that were happening in Doha, it's the U.S. involved here and Egypt and Qatar. Do any of them have enough leverage over either the Israelis or Hamas to push for a continued ceasefire? Or ultimately, is this going to be up to these these two groups? I just wonder how those kind of conversations are going with the other countries that are involved here. Well, uh, let's just assume for the for the record that Hamas wants as many ceasefire extensions as possible and dribble out Mm. as few hostages as possible. On the contrary, Israel uh, wants its hostages back and is prepared uh, probably to see if Hamas will release more hostages in a way that gives uh, the Israeli public what it wants, which is at least an end to the hostage side of this equation. And I don't think that the Israeli military is sitting uh, anxious to pull the trigger again at this point until they're able to figure out an end strategy once any ceasefire or durable extension of the current uh, pauses cont- is, uh, comes to an end. I, I, we're playing, in effect, almost an hourly game here. Hmm. Ambassador Kaley asked you uh, about Hamas's ability to rebuild and regroup in the middle of a pause like this. How about on the other side? How long can the IDF reasonably remain crouched if days or even weeks go by and still be ready? Uh, I'm not worried about the IDF uh, being ready. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the incentive for the IDF and the 120,000 reservists have been called up uh, is, is they're itching to get back into this fight. I'm not worried about it. What I'm more concerned about is the impact on Israel's economy. Uh, Israel was humming mm-hmm. along until October 7. And the, when you pull that many people out of the economy, uh, that begins to have a significant impact uh, on Israel's budget and Israel's, uh, I guess, domestic morale. But let's also not forget that there's another front in the north that is sapping yeah. Israel's energy as well. And as long as the conflict with Gaza continues, Israel faces an enormous challenge in the north, which after all is the real threat for a broader conflict, and that is between Hezbollah, Iran on the one hand, and the United States and Israel on the other. Ambassador, I'm glad you brought that up because, as Joe mentioned, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to make another trip to the region, and in addition to expressing U.S. support for Israel, in addition to pr- 
pushing for greater humanitarian relief. We do expect that a lot of his effort is going to be focused on preventing this conflict from expanding any further. How great do you think the risk is right now of this becoming wider regionally? I I think it's already pretty wide. In fact, this is that uh, although Hezbollah and Israel have in effect uh, respected what is taking place in Gaza, and so there's been somewhat of a truce between Hezbollah and um, and um, Israel, uh, Hezbollah's leader has made it very clear that as long as there are hostilities that are continuing in Gaza, uh, Hezbollah will continue to do what it can to divert uh, IDF attention away to, uh, in effect, make Israel's life and the Israeli population's life in the north miserable, uh, as well as uh, Israel doing the same for southern Lebanon. You have a massive, massive dis- dislocation now on both sides of the border of inhabitants that have lived on both sides of the border as a result of the fear factor that it's at work, that at, at any hour, at any day, uh, there can be a significant resumption of hostilities between Israel on the one hand and Hezbollah on the other. Well, we've talked about Anthony Blinken. You mentioned Bill Burns. How about Joe Biden? Does he go back? I don't think so at this point in time. I think the president uh, at this point in time has made it very clear that he's he, too, is trying to figure out how does he maintain uh, this outright support that is in his heart and soul for Israel's need to protect itself against the pressure and his own understandable own concern that he has for the fate of Gazans who are victimized by Hamas's uh, terrorist imprisonment of their of citizens inside Gaza. Uh, You can't hold all Gazans responsible for Hamas, notwithstanding the fact that they did elect Hamas in the first place. Well, and that again comes back to the humanitarian concern. We just got a headline out from the Pentagon that the U.S. has airlifted 54,000 pounds of relief supplies for Gaza. And yet we've heard consistently in recent days, Ambassador, that it's nowhere near enough. How close are we to an inflection point where the, the tide of public sentiment turns in a more material way, given the extent of the humanitarian crisis we are seeing in Gaza? Listen, I think in the end that uh, most most Americans, and by far the polls show that, support Israel's right to defend itself. And I don't think that notwithstanding all of the uh, demonstrations that have taken place and garnered publicity here, and the uh, expressions of concern on the White House staff that Americans are prepared to throw in the towel. Congress so far uh, has seemed willing to give bipartisan support to Israel and not condition aid. There's always going to be a few fringe senators, whether they be Bernie Sanders or Chris Murphy or even my senator from Maryland, Chris Van Hollen, who seem to Mm -hmm. be uh, far more concerned. But I, I ask you the following question. If they're more concerned than the uh, Palestinians on the West Bank, what does that say a lot to you? It says a lot to me. I want to get your reflections before you leave us, Ambassador, about what's happening today in Atlanta. Uh, For folks who don't know, you started your career essentially as a diplomat in the Carter administration. And we've got the president and first lady in Atlanta today. We've got every living first lady gathering as well. Uh, to say farewell uh, to Rosalind Carter. And I'm wondering what we should know, what people should know about the legacy that the Carter administration left in terms of establishing ties 
in the Middle East? Well, I worked on this issue uh, almost for three and a half years during the Carter administration as deputy advisor to the president for Middle East policy. And I spoke, had the privilege of speaking with Rosalind and the president when I was ambassador to Morocco, and they came and stayed with me to reflect on this period of time because he was truly dedicated to trying to forge more than just a peace between Egypt and Israel in the Camp David negotiations. But he came across the same type of a government in Israel that currently exists right now, a right-wing government led by Menachem mm -hmm. Begin, uh, who was determined to prevent President Carter from fulfilling his aspirations to bring about a, a, a first-stage autonomy for Palestinians, which we all believed in, and then secondly, to help produce a Palestinian two-state solution with Israel. The, the right-wing government in Israel would have nothing of it, and as a result, there was an enormous amount of friction that developed between what essentially should have been closer ties between President Carter and Israel because of his enduring commitment to peace between uh, Israel and Egypt, thanks, of course, to President Sadat. It's good to have you back, Ambassador. He's now president of Coalition for a Safer Web. Maybe we'll talk cybersecurity next time because that's actually a pretty big part of all of this. Mark Ginsburg, the former U.S. ambassador to Morocco. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.